Locked On Boston Bruins podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I am your host, Ian McLaren, and this is a daily Boston Bruins podcast where we discuss all things spoke to be, as well as take a look around the NHL. To keep up with the Locked On Boston Bruins podcast, please follow the show on Twitter at LO underscore Boston Bruins. You can also find me on Twitter at Ian C. McLaren. Please subscribe to the Locked On Boston Bruins podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, basically wherever you can get podcasts, we can be found. Uh, For those of you who are Apple listeners, I would kindly request uh, that you take some time today to rate and review the podcast. That would be very much appreciated. Today on the podcast, we're continuing our look at the 1970 Boston Bruins. Earlier this week, we had a reading from Orr, which was written, of course, by Bobby Orr, about his experience scoring the overtime Stanley Cup clinching goal against the St. Louis Blues, which was forever uh, captured in that iconic photo. And uh, today, I had thought it would be good to talk to someone who had watched that game and remembered it, but it was 50 years ago, and that's easier said than done. Uh, So instead, I found on my shelf a copy of Brian McFarland's Original Six book on the Bruins. Brian McFarland is a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, uh, unquestionably one of Canada's best and most prolific hockey writers, according to the back cover. Uh, He's written more than 40 hockey books and spent 27 years as a uh, commentator on Hockey Night in Canada. He wrote a book back in 1999 and uh, a lot of it covers, you know, well, all of Bruins history from the beginning up until that point. And there's some really good stuff in there on uh, the 1970 Bruins. So today is kind of going to be like a, a dollop type episode. For those of you familiar with the dollop, it's a history podcast where they, uh, you know, offer some information on uh, certain topics and, and throw in some jokes here and there as well. So we're going to take a look at a few stories from this book. And uh, that's a couple of things that I wasn't really familiar with. I'd probably heard about them in passing, but just forgot how crazy some of this stuff was. And then after that, we'll also uh, just update the NHL's COVID-19 plans and uh, Brad Marchand was on a conference call the other day as well and had some interesting things to say about that. Uh, But first, let's begin with a story about Derek Sanderson. And this section of McFarland's book is called The Bruins Bad Boy. He begins, When Derek Sanderson graduated to the Boston Bruins from the Ontario Hockey League's Niagara Falls Flyers in 1967, He quickly established a reputation as the Bruins' number one bad boy. That was quite an achievement, considering Boston had terrible Ted Green on their roster. Sanderson became a clever playmaker and a Calder Trophy winner, and he delighted in provoking opponents. He rated high on the list of hockey's all-time disturbers, and he proved early on that he could stand up to all the heavyweights. Kind of reminds me of a Brad Marchand, although... Maybe not with the the fisticuffs. Marshawn's never been really known as a an enforcer or, or big fighter per se, more of a, a shit disturber. Derek challenged the feared Orland Curtinbach of the Rangers to a fight early in his rookie season. His attitude after the bout was, "You win some, you lose some, 
but you've always got to show up. Always sniffing around for trouble, Sanderson got himself involved in some unusual jackpots. He warned goalie Eddie Giacomin of the Rangers in one playoff game to watch out. I'm going to put the next shot between your eyes. The crack set off one of the wildest brawls of the era. Giacomin went nose to nose with Sanderson before the next faceoff. We're not playing hockey tonight, you turkey. We're being paid to get you. I can almost guarantee he did not just say turkey, but thanks for the editorializing and PGFing of this, McFarland. Sanderson grinned and said, take your best shot. When the puck was dropped, several Rangers did just that, attempting to pound him in the face. If you remember, the Rangers and Bruins used to have quite a rivalry, and this was certainly part of it. It's kind of died down recently, but it's always cool when those two teams play. Sanderson, unlike most players, was not afraid of being punched out by the league's biggest enforcers. He said, hell, I like fighting. Maybe I'll get beat up, but I'll get the guy eventually. What can happen to you in a fight? Lose a couple teeth? I'll lose them eventually anyways. Obviously, this was before... (laughs) Concussions were a thing, and CTE, and, uh, you know, Sanderson later took a bit of a dark turn, which we'll, we'll get to here in a moment, kind of underplaying the impact of, of fighting back then. Now, this is where it gets really hilarious. Sanderson was capable of doing just about anything to agitate the opposition, and often the fans as well. Do you recall the rubber chicken caper in St. Louis? Well, no, I don't. It was before my time, but please enlighten us. A fan goaded Sanderson with a rubber chicken until he was forced to run for his life with a steaming Sanderson in hot pursuit. I guess the rubber chicken was to say that he was a coward or chicken shit. Chirk chased the guy right into the stands and might have caught him if he'd stopped to take his skates off. Little Mike Milbury-esque there. In a battle with Ray McKay of the Blackhawks, Sanderson ripped McKay's sweater off his back, scooped it up with the blade of his stick, held it triumphantly over his head, then tossed it disdainfully into the stands. Why did the talented Sanderson choose to become hockey's bad boy, vilified in every rink but the garden? There are three things that make money in pro sports, he once said. The first is talent, the second is points, the third is color. By color, I assume he means entertainment value. But the Bruins or an Esposito took care of the first two. That left me to look after the third. Now, I mentioned that Sanderson's life took a bit of a darker turn later, and McFarland writes, Sanderson, once a proud Bruin, once the highest paid athlete in the world, shudders when he thinks of how close he came to losing his life. I lost everything else, he says, blew every cent, lost my dignity, my self-respect, my friends, lost my mind and my body, terminated a great career. Earl McRae, who was a great reporter back in the day, he said it was the age of drugs, and I got caught up in it. That was Sanderson talking to McRae, I should say. Cocaine made me feel like a genius. I became a drug addict as well as an alcoholic. I was a short step from death. In 1979, I was down and out in New York, sleeping in parks and flop houses. One night, I tried to mug a drunk in Central Park. Tried to wrestle his bottle away from him. Think about this. This is only nine years after Boston won the Cup in 1970, about 12 years after he won the Calder Trophy. The guy fought with me and told me to screw off. I said to him, hey, do you know who I am? He pulled away and answered, no, you're a bum. 
A loser, just like me. Those words made me snap. He was right. I was a weak person with no strength of character, no guts to say no to the addiction that were destroying me. There were the blackouts, the nausea, the mood swings. That night, I fell to my knees and prayed to God. Please, dear God, save me. Please save me. That was a turning point in Sanderson's life. With the help of people at a rehab center, he kicked his drug habit and became a much different person. He promised himself and God that he would help others who were trapped in a world of drugs and alcohol. Now, how did he become the most, most, the richest guy in sports? Well, in 1972, he was a third line center for the Bruins, making about 75 grand. And then the WHA's Philadelphia Blazers made him an offer of 2.6 million to jump leagues. NHL and WHA, of course, had a bit of a rivalry going on back then before they merged. What did the owner of the Blazers know? He once asked his coach, how come the players don't work 9 to 5 like my truck drivers do? Oy, oy, oy. Sanderson's time with the Blazers was plagued by injuries. He appeared in only 8 games and recorded 6 points. And they eventually had enough with him. At the end of the season, he was paid a million dollars and returned to the Bruins. Uh, he, yeah, just went through a really downward spiral after that point. Interestingly enough, Bobby Orr. Uh, spent his own money to check Sanderson and several other former Bruins in rehab. Obviously, it was a quite a culture of drugs back then, not just with the Bruins, but all around hockey. Sanderson did um, eventually want to make sure that other hockey players did not follow his path, so he organized the Professionals Group of State Street Global Advisors, where he was the director of a group that provided financial advice to athletes in the 90s. He's now the managing director of the sports group, which is based in Boston. And his team works with athletes, high net worth individuals, uh, which is, uh, yeah, a really great thing that Sanderson was able to do after his playing days and after he got himself cleaned up. Now, another crazy story about the 1970 team that, like I said, I'm sure I heard before, but didn't quite remember was Harry Sinden walking away from the head coaching position after winning the cup. It reminded me a bit of Barry Trotz a couple of years ago, winning the cup with the Washington Capitals. And then uh, they parted ways over a contract dispute. He went to the New York Islanders and assistant Todd Reardon stepped in. Here's what McFarland writes about Sinden walking away. Can you imagine a winning coach walking away from his job after experiencing the thrill of a Stanley Cup victory. Well, yes, like I said, it just happened a couple years ago. Harry Sinden did in 1970. At age 37, after leading the Bruins from last place to first in a four-year span, after molding one of the highest-scoring teams ever assembled, a team that promised to dominate the game of hockey for the next half-dozen seasons, Sinden announced that he was quitting. The reason was money. The trifling sum of $5,000. Halfway through the 1969-70 season, Sinden went to team executive Milt Schmidt and asked to discuss his contract for the following season. Milt, you know I'm on the second year of a two-year contract. The Bruins have become a real power in the NHL. Before I came along, they missed the playoffs for seven straight years. I think I deserve a raise for next season. How much for how long, Schmidt replied. The term isn't important. A one-year deal is all right with me, but I'd like a raise of $8,000. I don't know if this is verbatim, but McFarland's kind of presenting it like that. Wow, that's a lot of money, Schmidt replied. 
Too much for me to approve. I'll have to ask Westy, who was then the president of the hockey club at only age 26. Two days later, Schmidt told Sinan the $8,000 figure was out of the question. Would he take 3000 Is that it? Is that all it worth to the Bruins? Sinan asked. Westy said that's as high as we can go. Sinden turned and walked out of Schmidt's office, aware that his days as the Bruins coach were numbered, even if the team went on to win the Stanley Cup. Two days later, Sinden called an old friend, Dave Sterling, owner of the Sterling Homex Corporation of Rochester, New York. Dave, you offered me an off-season job recently. I'm ready to get out of the hockey business. You still interested? Harry, we'll take you on full-time whenever you're ready. How about after the playoffs? Sounds good to me. Sterling understood why Sinden was bitter about hockey and the Bruins. Aside from his meager salary, Sinden had not been consulted when the Bruins made a blockbuster deal with Chicago months earlier, acquiring Esposito, Fred Stenfield, and Ken Hodge from the Hawks. Sinden said, I was hurt and embarrassed. Since I'd be coaching the new players, you'd think I'd have been consulted about the deal. I don't really know how much input coaches have on trades these days or back then, but maybe he had a point. There were other grievances as well. Sinden and general manager Hap Ems clashed repeatedly about how to run the hockey team. Ems was a strict disciplinarian. Sinden believed that a coach set the guidelines but lets his athletes play the game. And if his players enjoyed a couple of beers after a hard game, where's the harm? Well, we see how that kind of mentality ended up harming Sanderson, among others. Sinden fined his players for an offense. He discovered that the fine was often meaningless because management failed to deduct the amount from the players' paychecks. It made him look weak and foolish in the eyes of the players. So when the Bruins won the Cup in 70, Sinden was elated. He savored the victory, the parties, the parade. But three days later, he told management he would not be back. After 20 years in the game, after winning a world championship as a player, Stanley Cup as a coach, he was going into business with his friend in Rochester. What did the Bruins say? Good luck, Harry. We certainly won't stand in your way. Only two years later, Sinden returned to hockey in a job uh, that it appeared to be much cushier than it was. He was asked to coach Team Canada in the series of the century, an eight-game confrontation with the best players in the Soviet Union. Sinden's team overcame a 1-3-1 series deficit by taking three straight one-goal victories in Moscow, behind the timely goal scoring of Paul Henderson and the brilliant leadership of Phil Esposito. We all know that series, of course. Uh, Sinden returned to the Bruins after that, serving as longtime general manager and team president. Uh, on March 30th, 1999, Sinden received the prestigious Lester Patrick Award for Outstanding Service to Hockey in the United States. It completed a hat-trick of honors for the popular Sinden. He was elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1983 and the International Hockey Federation Hall of Fame in 1997. But I'm sure we can all agree that his time had come when he was replaced uh, in the early 2000s. Actually, in the year 2000, to be precise, as Michael Connell was hired on November 1st, 2000. He was the GM until 2006. And we've been talking about him recently with regard to the watched Joe Thornton trade. Now, one other story that I wanted to share from McFarland's book was a really uh, curious description of the famous Orr photo. 
McFarland writes, about that famous photo, you know the one, Bobby Orr flying through the air after scoring the Stanley Cup winner in overtime on May 10th, 1970. Kudos to the photographer, Roy Lessier from the Boston Herald. Great timing, great photo. But thumbs down on the ones who voted the moment as the greatest in NHL history. Huh? It was the concluding moment of a series that matched the Bruins against an expansion team, the St. Louis Blues, a mediocre club that was only in the final series because the NHL dictated one of the six new franchises should be rewarded with the chance to win the Cup. All the East Division teams except Toronto compiled more points and more goals than St. Louis did that year. Boston reached the finals with the series victories over New York and Chicago, while the Blues feasted on weak West Division foes. One could name a dozen greater moments. Why then did the folks at MasterCard select the Orr goal? Could it be that Bobby Orr was a spokesman for the company? Now, I did a bit of digging, and thanks to Paul Campbell, a friend on Twitter, and who's been on the show before, at Way to Go Paul, he pointed me to an article from 1996, I believe, that talked about how MasterCard ran a vote for the greatest moment in NHL history. More than 400 writers and broadcasters voted, and the Orr goal was named as the greatest moment in NHL history in this MasterCard promotion. Now, it seems as though McFarlane is pointing to the fact that Orr was a spokesperson for MasterCard. He ran a number of ads for them back in the day in the priceless slogan era. And perhaps MasterCard fixed it so that Orr won, uh, which is quite a conspiracy theory when you think about it. I would say that the goal is definitely the most iconic photo or image in hockey history, whether it's the greatest moment. Yeah, that's up for debate. We have Mario Lemieux's five goals, five ways to be um, one example, a bunch of other moments that are in contention. So sure, I can see that perhaps there's some question about whether it's the greatest moment. Uh, if we're talking about the greatest and most iconic image, then certainly it's up there. Uh, McFarland added, the photo does lead to a neat bit of hockey trivia. Name the player who passed the puck to Orr for his winning goal. Then name the St. Louis player whose stick propelled Orr into the air. And name the goalie who gave up the goal that ended the series. Answers, Sanderson with the assist, Noel Picard with the trip, and Glenn Hall with the goal allowed on the play. So those are just a few of the Stories from 1970 that I wanted to share today. Certainly an interesting group of players. I'm sure there's some several crazy stories to be shared from there. And I'm actually going to return to McFarland's book from time to time because there are some wild stories about hockey in Boston, how a Montreal woman named the Bruins, for example, um, how, yeah, there were some Bruins accused of racial slurs at one point, uh, the story of Willie O'Ree on the flip side, uh, and a lot of, yeah, just crazy stories in here. So I'll be sharing those from time to time as well. Now let's finish off with some news and notes from around the NHL. I mentioned that Brad Marchand was uh, on a video conference town hall with Bruins season ticket holders on Thursday. And he basically said that the biggest concern with this pause and possibly resuming play at some point is 
Uh, and I'll quote him here. He says, if you take guys that have been off, that have been very limited in their opportunities to work out and train, haven't skated in months, you can't just throw them back into games in a week. Everybody's going to get hurt. So there's got to be some sort of ramp up period. It's going to be really, really ugly for the first few games. It'd be nice to get a couple of games in before the playoffs start. Otherwise, it's really a free for all. Um, Marchand, of course, had 87 points in 70 games this season for the Bruins, uh, who led the NHL with 100 points. They were going to be one of the favorites to win the cup, I'd say. But the pause may have put teams on more of a level playing field because everyone will be starting from day one, basically, and teams will be returning to health. We know that uh, Steven Stamkos was injured, for example. We know that the Maple Leafs were dealing with some injuries, just to name a couple Atlantic teams, uh, for example. Um, Marshawn added, it'd be very upsetting to be not able to play to see how it would have played out. We have a really good team, a good opportunity. The toughest part is that years like this don't come around really often. It's taken us a long time to build to where we are now and be the team we are. You know we would have loved to have seen how that would have played out and the opportunity we had. There's a lot of teams in that position right now, a lot of good teams that were contenders this year. Obviously, it makes it a bit more um, of a loss seeing as the Bruins were so close last season and really wanted to make good on that. Perhaps if they had won last year, uh, the sting of not playing right now would be taken away a little bit, but... um, Marshan did add, on the flip side, there's much bigger things at stake here. You know it's very unfortunate what's going on and the opportunity that could potentially be lost. I think we're all more concerned about people's lives at stake here right now. Um, He did reject the notion outright of just giving the Bruins the cup as the first place team. He said, you know, you go through the playoffs to win a cup. We've earned first place throughout the year. We've competed hard, and we've shown that we're a top team. But it'd be hard to turn that trophy down, but at the same time, you want to earn it. So I don't know what I would do in that situation. Maybe take a couple of drinks out of it and pass it back. Uh, Speaking of taking a couple of drinks, he was asked who he'd uh, want to be quarantined with, and uh, I think he mentioned Tuka Rask, uh, but they would get hammered all the time, and it would be Rask's fault. He's a second Bruin to kind of take a shot at uh, at Rask after Chara recently said he wouldn't want to be with Rask because of his terrible gas. Now, Pierre Lebrun of TSN reporting the NHL can make between $400 and $500 million U.S. through various media deals and sponsorships if the 2020 playoffs were staged even in empty arenas. That's why the league and the players are examining every option to resume this season, even if it means playing in the summer. They could lose up to $1.1 billion if the entire season was scrapped. So this would be an opportunity to perhaps cut those losses in half. And, you know, there's salary cap implications. There's escrow implications, hockey-related revenue. Um, the League is therefore exploring these kind of neutral site, smaller arenas with, you know, hotels around that players can be sequestered in. 
Um, there's some question as to whether players will want to be separated from their families, if they can bring their families, how often they'd have to be tested. There's a lot up in the air, but um, that basically is the reason why the league and the players are leaving every door open to resume play at some point, just to kind of mitigate those losses. There was one story that I wanted to get to from earlier this season. We talked a lot about Bill Peters in Calgary and how he was let go by the Flames after a story came out that he directed a racial slur at former player uh, Akeem Alou. Uh, Peters has since been hired by a KHL team and Alou released a statement that I thought was very on point. Uh, He tweeted, over the last 24 hours, I've received a lot of requests to comment on the news of Bill Peters being hired at the KHL. I thought this would be the best way to share my thoughts. And he uh, posted a note on Twitter that read uh, the following. Hockey is for all. I believe in second chances for everyone, that we can all find forgiveness in our heart, and that real positive change is coming if we continue to push forward together. I don't resent a man for finding work but I will fight to make sure those same opportunities are available to everyone on and off the ice, regardless of race or ethnicity. I'm also patiently looking forward to the outcome of the NHL's investigation. Only with past behind us can we focus on the future. That means bringing hockey to the underprivileged youth in order to make the game more diverse, affordable, and accessible to all, regardless of race, gender, and economic background. Stay tuned. Hashtag time to dream. Very gracious statement there from uh, Akeem Alou. And yeah, I forgot about the NHL's open investigation. Hopefully they'll still come to a resolution on that despite uh, the pause, despite Peters going over to um, Russia to coach. And uh, But I just really thought Alou's statement was really gracious, positive, not sweeping things under the table, but allowing for uh, some movement to the future while also looking for some resolution and tangible action to come from it. And finally, Governor Chris Sununu, speaking of neutral site games, he confirmed that he's talked to Gary Bettman about the possibility of playing the rest of the NHL season in Manchester, New Hampshire. I visited Manchester, nice city, uh, be close for some of you, uh, but still, um, yeah, be very odd to see games played in neutral sites and in empty arenas, but I'm sure they'll package it up and present it in a, in a pretty cool way. That's it for this week's uh, Locked On Boston Bruins podcast. Thanks so much to everyone for tuning in. Thank you to those who subscribe, download on a regular basis. Again, you can find the podcast where Ever podcasts are available. Apple users, please leave a rating and a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Do check out the Locked On NHL podcast. And I will be back next week where we will be talking about some of the greater moments from this past season. Have a great weekend, friends. Take care of yourselves. And I'll catch you later.